Welcome to Marketing Tip Tea Time, where it's our mission to make marketing accessible to anyone. Today is our Halloween special, if you uh, don't notice, and I am a pickle, and today we are here with Chris Thomas, who, by the way, composed and did everything for the music for that intro stinger that you just saw. Was that not the most amazing thing you've ever heard? Uh, yeah, it was pretty awesome. Um, before I go forward, though, I'm going to go ahead and get back into my human form because being a pickle is really, really, really hot. Actually, being an astronaut pickle is very hot. So I'm going to go ahead and change real quick and get right back in. All right. There we go. Wow. That, that was quite, you can see the sweat happening. All right. So before we dive right in, though, uh, I would like to give a special thanks to our sponsor for this season, Whole Brain Consulting. Whole Brain Consulting is an outsourced operations consultancy that specializes in the consumer products industry, providing solutions catered to your production. Services include QA, QC, supply chain, operations, logistics, R&D, and private equity due diligence. Now, we're going to get a little Halloween-y here with Chris Thomas. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. He's an amazing composer, all right? He's a composer for film, television, theme parks, and he's a TEDx speaker. He's won a Hollywood Music and Media Award, the American Prize in Composition, second place, a Global Music Award, the Gold Medal Prize at the Park City Film Music Festival, Best Film and TV Music Award at E-World Music Awards and has been nominated for a Film and TV Music Award and a Palm Beach International Music Award. Chris has written music for several Emmy-nominated films and for Woman Rebel, which was shortlisted for an Academy Award. In television, he works as a composer, orchestrator, and conductor. Wow, that's a lot for studios such as Sony, ABC, Fox, CBS, and HBO. Chris's work can be heard in theme parks, which we're going to dive into, all over the world. He has written music for the Evermore Adventure Park, Knott's Berry Farm, Queen Mary Chill, Dreamland Theme Park, UK, Los Angeles, Haunted Hayride, and many more. Chris's works for the Concert Hall have been performed from Carnegie Hall, Sydney Opera House, to the Hollywood Bowl. He recently premiered a series of concert works in France, Belgium, and Germany, all over the world. His symphony number no. one, the Mahler Symphony, was the subject of a TED talk in 2019. His works are published with the FJH Music Company, Walton Corral, Wingert Jones Publications, and Carl Fisher Music. Holy cow, what a resume and a life. Please help me welcome Chris Thomas, everyone. Give him a round of applause. Holy moly. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like a lot. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we're really appreciative of your time being on our show and helping our audience to experience a little bit of music and learn about what you do. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yes, it's, it's pretty great. By the way, Soon He Newbold is the one who connected us, so thank you to Soon He. Very, very exciting. Yes, indeed. I have much to thank her yeah. for, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. So if you're watching Soon He, she actually tunes in a lot. 
Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Before we dive into your career, though, I do want to talk about this tea that we got. So everyone, this is yes. the, from New English Teas. It's English afternoon tea. Um, this was actually came all the way from the UK and is here with us in uh, Greeley, Colorado, and also in Oregon. So tell us a little bit about this tea. Well, this tea was uh, something of a, a a tourist gift. Uh, my wife and I made a stopover in London coming home from uh, Italy uh, several years back. And a friend of mine who's now a, a really successful music supervisor uh, came down from Coventry, where this tea is from, and she brought it with a little gift bag. And we sat on it for a few years, hadn't opened it. And at one point, when uh, my wife's parents um, <clears throat> were you know getting up in years we thought you know they, they would probably appreciate having our tea that came all the way from england and they wow. really seemed to like it and they 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 drank quite a bit of it and um not not and this isn't really a, a bummer story in the making but uh I, but it's something that made this tea special to me uh when uh, you know brigitte lost both of her parents uh within the course wow. of a year recently and when her mom was uh in her final stages we had to relocate to san diego for a while uh to help out with the uh, you know the end of life uh, care and during that time we all shared quite a bit of this tea and it became the central thing that you know we, we wow. enjoyed during those months and um, while it's not a significant tea there's nothing particularly fancy about it <laughs> um, it's one that just has a lot of personal meaning to me that that is fantastic we always love to hear the story behind the tea and uh, I'm gonna try it for the first time here actually yeah. it will... it's been since 2009 for, or 19 for me oh wow Actually, I really like this tea. It's um, like not as strong as an Earl Grey or a, or a black breakfast tea, but it's right. it's mellower. But it's got the same tones to it. That's I've actually never heard of an English afternoon tea, so that's perfect. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's the only one of its kind. But it is surprisingly tasty. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, I I love it. Um, wow. Thank you very much. So we're gonna now dive straight into the questions. Um, and we, again, everyone in the audience, we are sourcing our questions from the audience prior to the show. So if you do have questions, please submit them to us when we make those posts online and those will get put into our run of show. You can also maybe ask some live and we could have some live interaction, but that depends on time. So our first question comes from Peter Romero, who is upstairs, actually. And he asks, where do you find slash cultivate your inspiration from for your pieces? Well, it really depends on the kind of thing I'm doing. Um, it's slightly different for film, theme parks, and concert music. But one thing is always the same when it comes to finding creativity. Uh, for me, it seems to be different for every composer. No one ever generates ideas in the same fashion, but I found the one consistency with my work is I can't be indoors or sitting at a computer to come up with musical ideas. Uh, oh. I have to be outside. And so all those years in Los Angeles, I had to live in parts of town that had access to like really big parks or they were very foresty, hilly neighborhoods. And the majority of my time there, I spent pretty far north above the city um, kind of in the mountains just above uh, Los Angeles where there's a lot of uh, hiking trails and the hills themselves block out the city. And every day for an hour or two, I need to wander outside 
and just explore around. And the minute I leave the computer behind and I'm outside moving, something about the lack of interference of any technology or even instruments like a piano in my way, I can just hear my thoughts in a very pure way. And within often five or 10 minutes, the solution I'm looking for to a musical problem will appear. And I just have to have my phone handy to record myself singing the big lightning bolt of inspiration that'll inevitably hit. And uh, sometimes I have rounded corners mid conducting and you know, an invisible orchestra and singing out loud into my phone and have run into hikers. And uh, it's pretty rare, but I have spooked a few people on trails before. That, so. <laughs> that, that is, that's actually pretty awesome that, um, we have uh, we've heard of a bit from some composers that being outdoors really brings that. So um, that, that could be a theme that I think our audience should take note of. And it's also one of the reasons I decided to spend more time up in the Northwest versus living in LA full time. Uh, as I'm only there part of the year, but anymore I try to anchor myself here in the Northwest, where it's uh, up here in the mountains in Central Oregon, where there's nothing but outdoors and open space. So, right. Wow, that is awesome. Um, our next question comes from Tyler Smith. He asks, what's the one hardest lesson you've had to learn pertaining to networking in the early days of your music career? Yeah, so I think like in all business, networking is just this necessary evil, so to, so to speak. It can be done very tactfully and it can be done very much not tactfully. And LA has its own specific brand of networking. And it's a scene where when people are trying to break into a business, there's a lot of <laughs> desperation in the air. You can just smell it <laughs> on people. And most people's approach to one another is very callous and vain. And networking events tend to happen where in this in the style where you you're in a big room full of producers editors filmmakers and composers like me will drop in to to meet people and often the, the, the one one of the things that happens is people scan the room to see if you even look important enough to talk to and if you introduce yourself they give you an up and down and say no nah, sorry and they just move on nothing nothing personal but they just don't want to talk to you you don't seem a list for some reason They'll, they will just move on and some of them approach you by just the micro 15 second conversation where they shove a card into your chest and <laughs> you're stuck with it now and they say hey if you're ever doing this this call me i cast me in this role and they don't even wait around long enough to figure out i'm just a composer and uh and so they just play the numbers but if you could see a theme wow. of non-authenticity at work that's where i'm going with this and realizing this was going nowhere and networking events did absolutely nothing for my future my, my rule became, well, I guess my rule is very simple. It's don't network people. Networking is a thing you do, but you don't approach people like you're networking them. To me, that was, that was the one thing that I think would set me back the farthest. Whenever I would find somebody I had a little bit in common with and engage in a conversation, and I would spend most of a networking evening talking to someone who was genuinely interesting, I shared creative interests with. We, uh, we both worked in motion picture and loved the same kinds of movies. We seemed to speak the same language. Suddenly, like a real thing was forming, and they were happy to pass my name on to a lot of people. And I realized, oh, networking and business is a lot like life. Um, 
you have to be a real person. And so I have a series of rules that I, uh, you know, that, I, that I've cultivated over time. The first is, is basically what I was explaining, uh, be a real person. You know, business is based on trust. And to gain trust, you have to be a real human. You can't just be really schmoozy or facade or image crafty because mm-hmm. um, people can sense that. Um, you know, the other part is find the right partners for yourself. You can't win everybody all the time. But what you can do is find the right people who have a really similar creative vision to yours and that you would be a great collaborator with. Because you can't be a great collaborator for everyone. But the people that really connect with your style and voice as an artist won't just enjoy working with you they will become lifelong partners and that sustainable partnership is a really big part of succeeding uh, at least in the motion picture side of things and then my final my final bit is that um, facades are dangerous everyone wants to show up in los angeles dressed right driving the right car and they're prioritizing very superficial uh, ways of impressing people um, and not really focusing either on the craft the quality of the product or cultivating their ability to be excellent collaborators so i would say you know if if, if you've ever seen have you seen, you know i'm sure you've you've noticed those ads where somebody you know a, a youtube commercial opens with somebody on their phone like all right come come right through here go through these doors you're not going to believe what's on the yep. other side you know <laughs> and you can't miss out on what on this opportunity and if you're and and there's just enough of those people you know i mean i guess they know they can sucker just enough people into maybe spending money on whatever it is they're peddling but most people have the sensibility to not fall for those kinds of tricks it's dirty and there's clearly nothing that worthwhile on the other side of that door right <laughs> and so if, if if your bs detector goes off somebody else's will too um, prioritize real connections and focus on the craft simple as that wow that is that is fantastic advice so you know kind of going into this this human aspect of, of networking and, and your work, um, Alyssa Youngval asks, how do you think about the listener experience, particularly, particularly when writing a piece for a theme park? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's true in most musical domains, um, but especially true in film and theme parks that the listener experience is front and center. Uh, when you go meet with with theme park developers, it's very different than meeting with filmmakers who are, you know, really concerned about how you're going to manage the budget and if you can answer to producers, studio people. You know, um, the conversation's a little more tense. But with theme parks, it's like you walk into these meetings and the first thing they ask is like, "Do you believe in magic?" Because we do. <laughs> like, you know, this is going to be such a wonderful experience. We're so excited. We're all going to go on this journey together. And so the culture is so different. And the, right. the number one rule is, is experience and transcendence. Can you sweep people away into the magic? And it doesn't matter how silly or cheesy your idea ends up sounding. The, the music is almost irrelevant. It's can the experience come together and can you find a tone that is transporting? And it just immerses you in a magical wow. environment right away. Um, if that's not what you're trying to do, you probably shouldn't be writing for theme parks. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I would have to awesome, say. <laughs> that's, 
that that's how you think about that, though, um, because really yeah. some of that music kind of turns almost into a marketing tactic within within sure. its own realm. That is. Yeah, well, it's all part of the branding process too. Uh, you you cultivate a tone and a style unique to that park or that particular experience. So whenever people hear something similar to it, it just recalls that time and that adventure they were on. And that's part of the subversive thing film and theme park music can do. Wow. That is, <laughs> that is fantastic. And along those same lines of branding, as far as personal branding goes, what did you do that was most valuable to build your career? And this is from Josh French. Yeah, okay. I didn't know what that was at first. And over time, it's the kind of thing you discover, like, you know, once you've been in something for more than 10 years, you begin to realize what make, well, not what makes, but what made the difference and what didn't. And um, this really goes back to the networking question in a way. It's, I, I found the key word for, for real sustainable survival in my business, um, which I guess is, it's like branding, uh, but not exactly, is authenticity. If you, you must be real as a person, you need to be, a, you need to present yourself and build a presence around you that shows you can be trusted with people's money, <laughs> that you're not gonna, you, you have a proven record of delivering on time, but, but lots of people can do that. And I and what I found a deeper meaning under the whole authenticity thing, because there was a point where, you know, after 2008 and everything was falling apart in the world and um, after that market crash, um, I, I was trying to stay in business and it wasn't going well for some years. And right. I, I thought, I went down this road of, okay, maybe I need to do something more with a little more mass appeal. I started kind of following different, influences from other major composers and i would take on more trailer album writing deals where i thought oh maybe i can just put more content out into the market but i started to realize people weren't really respecting my music as much and i was only attracting more work from people who didn't care about the quality of my work or how our inner how authentic our interactions were i was just a content creator i was not an artist anymore mm. and um and I began to realize the more I began to homogenize into the center of what everyone else was doing out there, uh, the more I was getting lost. And so um, there was a point where I, uh, I, I realized, you know, I, I can't afford to just be like everyone else. I need to go back to my roots. And I thought, what is it about me that I do that nobody else does? And the truth is we all walk a very unique path in life. We all come from a certain area. We all have certain musical influences that are just not like anyone else's. Um, we, you know, if you study music, you end up falling in love with different kinds of music you've been exposed to along the way and build them into your palette of personal style. And for me, I grew up with a lot of Americana music. Uh, and also I grew up around a lot of Irish fiddle players, gospel oh. music. And uh, I played a lot of gospel for small churches out in the countryside where I grew up and uh, just became part of my palette. But all through my college years, I fell in love with the Balinese Gamelon. And so the Balinese oh, Gamelon wow. has been a huge part of my life. And a lot of my work is based off 
uh, Balinese gamelan uh, musical conventions. And if you listen to enough of my stuff and listen to some Balinese gamelan orchestra music, you'll absolutely hear how I think as a composer. And those things all intersect and they create a very unique sort of musical force. Like I can put those together and they and those things will make sense where somebody else integrating those ideas, it may not go so smoothly. But the point is it creates something fresh and we all have it in us. And I realized my brand is my own thing. And the more I started leaning back into myself, uh, business had never been better. I was not only getting more offers for work, but people came to me just to have the sound that I've cultivated. And wow. that essentially, and so unlike the person who falls into mass homogenized sound, you're replaceable by the next person who will do the job for $1 cheaper if anyone could produce the same thing. I'm unfireable at this point. <laughs> I, if you came to me for that particular sound, no one else is going to do it for you. So they have to keep working with me. <laughs> so I, right. for me, that finding of my personal authenticity and my authentic brand, so to speak, as it, through my sound, was the key to succeeding. Um, that was the biggest turning point in my career. That, wow. That is a great story. Not, not just, not just fantastic advice, but also just what a fantastic story. Um, just one more question for you then. What is the number one piece of advice, which I feel like we're, you know, kind of hovering around a central theme here, but what is the <laughs> number one piece of advice that you would give to any artist looking to work in your industry and to break through in your industry? Gosh, one single piece of advice. I, it's, I, I do sort of have a two-part answer now that I think about it. The, the first really is an extension of what I just said before. Part of my identity and brand is my musical personality. Um, I need to have something fresh and unique to separate myself from everybody else. And I think the common knowledge you know, quote unquote, common knowledge for people going into the music business is that you need to follow trends. You need to fall into the middle. You want to go into pop, you need to learn to sound like Taylor Swift. Um, but mm. the day you have a meeting with a record executive or a studio head, they're like, we have enough of this. Who are, like, I hope to God you're not someone else trying to sound like John Williams or Hans Zimmer. Like, give us something new. And that's what people at the highest level are really asking for. And most people's careers end very quickly because within a few years, there's nothing for you because anybody can do what you're doing. And so oh, wow. your distinctiveness is your long-term survival. Some people do well for a while and and the more homogenized sound uh, that you can find in various parts of the music business. But the minute you stand out in your own way is when things will turn around in a big way for you. And uh, for anyone in my world, especially if you're going into film and theme parks, um, the, the other most important thing I would attach to that is being a world-class collaborator knowing how to listen, not make it about you and what they can do for you. Because because composers are lowly, humble servants of the picture or the, the experience. It's not about us getting our way or, or composing something we're, we just want to write because we can. It's about how to truly understand the needs 
of your client and give them the value that they're looking for and ask it of yourself to do it over and over, do what you have to do to give them that thing. And the challenge is on you. And, and for a while I thought maybe it's just me who thinks like this, but then after recording voiceovers and, and uh, with, with people like Kathy Bates or Bob Odenkirk, Samuel L. Jackson, I've, I've gotten to work with people like this and, yeah. and, and sometimes on very, very small projects. And even the smallest project, and some of them have even volunteered for stuff, and they show up with pages of notes, thinking that even beyond what the director was asking for, and they asked to do several hundred other takes, thinking, because they, they noticed parallels between different parts of the script, and they show, they show up so immersed in what we're doing that they give us so much more than we could have asked for. They have no business being that generous to us, but it says exactly this thing, they are world-class collaborators for anybody that they choose to work with. They brought their A-game, even for someone like me. And that really, and those experiences really reinforced that point. It's not about, I'm the artist, what can, I, what can you do for me? But it's the opposite. And uh, if you can't think from a lowly and humble place <laughs> or offer that perspective to your clients, you will have a short-lived career for sure. <laughs> wow, that, uh, that is... We call it um, spilling the the secret sauce, or sometimes we call it <laughs> spilling the tea. That was, I mean, that was some great advice about collaboration. Um, oh, good! Wow, you just have blown us away today, Chris Thomas, and I am so thankful that you are on the show, and so thankful for everyone who's been watching and been supporting us. Um, we did start out a little over a year ago on a GoPro in a little tiny office and now we have like a studio and all of this stuff. So um, I'd like to just say a few thank yous before we get off of the show. Thank you to uh, actually my parents for providing the pumpkins and most of the decorations you should see. <laughs> thank you to uh, Peter Romero, our graphic supervisor and music supervisor for putting together the animation and the lighting. And thank you Chris for doing a fantastic job with that intro. My gosh, it that really blew me away. I am so happy. I, honestly, everyone, I couldn't sleep last night because I was so excited about today. Uh, yeah, can we? Let's roll that again. Let's do that. Phil. Sure. Let's do that. We're gonna watch it one more time. Here we go. <laughs> that makes me so happy. I, wow, that just it was fun to do. <laughs> oh man, that was so great. So they worked together. Thank you to Phil Van Drunen, our technical director, for you know making a lot of this happen and helping with you know get, getting through all of the technical things that happen. You know when we use technology to try and do these things, and um, also to our new subscribers. And our listeners on our podcasts, which we just recently started to release, you will be able to find Marketing Tip Tea Time on all of your podcasting, you know, wherever you listen. And it is Marketing Tip Tea Time. Just go ahead and put that in and you will find us. It's yellow letters, Marketing Tip Tea Time in a blue background. And yes, once again, Chris, thank you so much. Thank you for the tea. This was a fantastic tea. I really, okay. I really love it. Actually, it's... um. I had no idea what to think when you know we're shipping it from you know a completely different continent. Coventry, and, yeah. <laughs> and it just—it's amazing. I I I could drink this tea a lot. This is a good tea. It's 
it's when I, if you want a little energy, but not, not as in your face as black tea. Right. Well, it really made my day to see this box again. Uh, like it's, <laughs> it's been two years since I've seen it and, uh, it really brings back a lot of, uh, profound and very fond memories. And it's really great to, right. to share it with you on the show today. Awesome. And a shout out to the Greeley West Spartan Strings, the chamber orchestra for Greeley West High School. They're actually watching this episode during their class right now. So thank you what? to all of you. Hey, you guys. <laughs> Chris says hi, everyone. All right. And until next time, thank you so much, Chris. Thank you, everyone. Cheers. Nasravi. Cheers. <laughs> Poor old guy.